Amen. Well, take your Bibles once again and open up to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. This is our sixth sermon on the story of the prodigal son as we are looking at these seven primary themes in the prodigal son that we see throughout all of Scripture. The Lord willing, we'll uh, conclude this series next Sunday. This morning, we're in Luke 15. We'll be focusing primarily on verses 25 through 32. If you want to understand any part of the Gospel of Luke, you must understand the primary themes of Luke as a whole. Every one of the the Gospels are different. Every one of them have different themes. All of this giving us a different picture of the same Jesus, but allowing us to see the kingdom and Christ in, in different ways. And so it is, in the Gospel of Luke, one of the primary themes is that Luke is a book of great reversals. Meaning, the book of Luke takes our picture of Christ and picture of his kingdom and really shatters our thoughts on what this is really going to be. Luke, more than any other gospel, shows us an upside-down kingdom. In Luke, the lowly are exalted. That begins with, with Mary. The poor are rich, the last are first, the outsiders are insiders. In every single page of the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that the kingdom of God is filled with surprises. It is confounding our expectations. And the biggest surprise of the kingdom is seen in the Gospel of Luke is who gets in and who doesn't. This is a theme from the beginning of Luke to the very ending of Luke. Everyone seems to be surprised by who gets in the kingdom and who doesn't. One of the best places to see this is in Luke 18. There are three stories in Luke 18, all of them surprising for those who are listening. The first is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's a parable Jesus tells. He says, a Pharisee, a religious rule-keeping man who had always done the right things in the eyes of the community, walks into a temple and he prays. And he prays seeing a tax collector and says, oh God, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I'm so glad I'm not a swindler and a criminal and a robber. God, thank you that I'm not like that. And then the tax collector, so overcome by his sin and the weight of his sin, cannot even lift his head up to heaven, but falls upon the ground simply saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And to the surprise of everyone, Jesus says, it was the tax collector who walked out justified and not the religious rule-keeping man. He then tells us about these children who are running to Jesus to come to him. The disciples say, no, 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 the children can't come to Jesus. And Jesus says, let the children come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, no, they're exactly the ones that I want in the kingdom. And then there's that story of the rich young ruler. Now, this guy had it all. He was wealthy. He had resources. He had always kept the rules. As a matter of fact, Jesus asked him about the rules, and he says, I've done all of those. I've kept those commandments. But yet Jesus says, I want you to sell everything and come and follow me, and he refuses, and he walks away outside of the kingdom. And finally, at this point, the disciples look at Jesus at the end of Luke 18 and say, well, then who can be saved? It's an upside-down kingdom. They cannot understand who gets in and who doesn't because everyone they assumed was going to naturally get in doesn't get in. And y'all, all of those that they assumed would never get in seem to get in. There's a great picture of this as well in Luke 14. 
There's a man that throws a large banquet. And he invites all of his friends to come to the banquet. It's a lavish feast and everything has been prepared. But as they go to the friends, all of them have an excuse why they can't come. And so all of them deny the invitation. The man that has the banquet says, well, then go and get the poor and the blind and the lame and invite them to come to my banquet. And they do, but there's still room left. To which the man hosting the banquet says, go out into the highways and hedges and compel anyone to come in that my house may be filled. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, you see Jesus helping us to understand this picture. That those religious, rule-keeping, church-going people who we always assume are going to get in are somehow missing the kingdom. Because the kingdom is not filled with the religious. The kingdom is filled with the responsive. And that's the context of Luke 15. The whole reason you have this little episode here in Luke 15, 1 and 2 is because Jesus keeps revealing this over and over, this upside-down kingdom, this surprise of who Jesus is receiving and who is rejecting him. Look what it says in the first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's three parties present in the beginning of Luke 15. There are the irreligious, the religious, and Jesus. The irreligious are the tax collectors and sinners, not just the worst of the worst. It's just the outsiders, those who didn't seem to fit into the mold of what the religious institution was expecting. They just didn't fit. They were outsiders. They're the religious, the, the Pharisees and scribes. They were the rule-keeping insiders who had done all the right things and walked the line and fulfilled all the expectations. Then there's Jesus, and no one knows what to do with him. He's, he's, he's referred to in verse 2 as, as this man, the religious say. This man receives sinners and eats with them. He just doesn't fit into their categories. He's not the irreligious, but he eats with them and welcomes them. He's not the religious, but he claims to be God. He claims to be the prophet of God. The irreligious love him and the religious hate him. And when the religious see him eating with the irreligious, all of their categories are shattered and their response is to grumble. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the entire reason you have the rest of this chapter is that Jesus is responding to their grumbling. And he responds to their grumbling with three stories. All of them follow the same pattern. There is a sheep that is lost. The shepherd goes after it, diligently seeks it, finds it, brings it back, throws a party. There's a coin that is lost, a family heirloom. A woman diligently searches for it, finds it, brings it back, calls her friends, and they throw a party. And then there's the story of a lost son who is gone, and the father diligently searches for him and finds him, brings him back, and, and there's a party. But the key to understanding Luke 15 is seeing how at the end of the parable of the lost son, Jesus brings us all the way back to the way the story started and the Pharisees who are grumbling because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Let's start in verse 11 and read the entire story. If you're there in Luke 15 at verse 11, say amen. 
He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now listen, if we were to stop right there, this would be the exact same story as the previous two. Something lost, something diligently searched for and found, and then something celebrated. But that would have addressed Jesus and the way he feels about tax collectors and sinners, but it would not have addressed the grumbling religious. And so he ends this way in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. He came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, the only difference between this story and the previous two is the way in which it ends. The lost sheep is found, there's a party, the lost coin is found, there's a party and everyone comes. There's a lost son, he's found, there's a party and everyone comes except one. There is one person who just could not stand the thought of the party. Instead of coming to the party, he's grumbling. He's pouting. And it's here in which the story of the older brother becomes clear that everything in this text is pointing us back to the grumbling of the Pharisees. And what Jesus is doing with the picture of the older brother is he's confounding our understanding of the kingdom and making sure we understand it's not the religious who get in, but the responsive. And it is possible to be religious and still lost. 
Let's look at it together in verse 25. So the older son was in the field, meaning most likely he was out watching over the workers. That was his responsibility. He would have been in some way a manager of all that the father had. So the father would have been home. The son would have been out managing, making sure things were working. It was a hard job. Uh, We do believe by a lot of things in this story that they were a family of great wealth, uh, had a lot of land and a lot of resources. And so it is the older brother's responsibility is to care for those things that the father owned, not only for himself, but for future generations. This is what he did. So he, he comes home from a long day at work and notices that something's different. He hears music and dancing. Now, it's just a normal day. This is an unusual thing to hear when you get home. Imagine it this way. You come home after school or after a long day of work, and as you pull into your street, you start to see cars lined up on the right side and on the left side. They're parked in different yards. They're parked in different driveways, and you know something is going on. You then go a little further and get to your driveway and realize there is something going on. There's a party going on, and it's at your house. Now, you didn't know there was a party going on, but there is smoke coming from the backyard, which means something is being cooked, and you can smell it. And there's all kinds of people you don't know in the front yard. There's music playing, and there's children dancing. It's obvious there's a massive party going on at your house. Now, at the end of just a normal work day, that is a shocking thing to come home to. That's exactly what happened to this man. He's just in a normal day of work, had just finished. He comes home. He smells the smell of the meat cooking. He hears the sound of the music playing. He walks up and sees the entire courtyard filled with children dancing. And so it tells us in verse 26 that he called one of the servants and asked them what these things meant. Now, that word servants is unusual. It really means a small child. So the picture you get here is there's children out dancing. They're playing There's no school, there's no work, nothing's going on. It feels like a holiday. He sees one of the children out there dancing. He stops him and says, what's happening? What's going on in the house? To which the child responds in verse 27, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now there are two words you have to understand that the older brother would have understood a little more clearly than we might. There is the word there when it says your brother has come and then your father has received him safe and sound. Because that word there when it says your brother has come, which might also be translated in some of your versions, he has returned, is a deeply meaningful word in the New Testament. It means not just to come back somewhere. It means to have turned and repented. That by saying your brother has come home, it means that he's come to make things right. He has changed his ways. He has changed his attitude and come back to the father. Now that's shocking to the older brother. But what's more shocking is that his father has received him. That word always means to be reconciled. In other words, what he hears from this small child is your brother's come back. He's back. He's he's home. And your father has made peace with him. Your father has forgiven him. Your father has said all is forgotten and brought him back in as a son. Your father has given him a a ring to symbolize that he's back in the family. Your father has given him a robe. And that smell you smell is that the father is so excited. He's killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating the fact that your father has brought your brother back in, restored and forgiven. And this party, it's for him. 
In the same way that the first party was for the lost sheep and the second party was for the lost coin, so it is the third party in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, was, was for the Son. Now, the point of all of those parties is that this is life in the kingdom. Like, we're going we're to talk about this more next week, but I don't know how you think about the kingdom of God, but Jesus, having a perfect opportunity to explain the kingdom gives us a picture of the kingdom in which we are three loud parties with good food, music, and hold on if you're a Baptist, dancing. I'm just, I don't know, I'm not saying anything. I'm just leaving it there. That's, the, that's, that's how Jesus describes the kingdom, that there is this festive atmosphere in the kingdom of God. He ends every one of them by saying, and such is the kingdom. But those celebrations are always reserved for when the lost have come home. That those who have wandered away from the Lord have been brought back. And there's nothing that makes the father more happy than when a lost son comes home. The brother doesn't share this excitement. Look at what it says in verse 28. But he was angry and he refused to go in. Now, culturally speaking, by refusing to go in, he right there has dishonored his father. Because this is his father's party. And the older son should be in the party, hosting the party, helping serve at the party. But by refusing to come in, he has dishonored his father. He has rejected his father's invitation. And what he does is simply stay outside and and pounce. He refuses to, to come in. Now, remember last week when we talked about stewing? Anybody remember that? Uh, we talked about how when the son left and took a third of his father's property and wasted it all on reckless living, you would assume that the father would be home stewing. This is just what we do when we get angry or we get hurt or someone does something to us that seems unjust, we stew. We shouldn't stew, but we do. Instead of resolving something or talking it out, we think that it's much better just to hold on to it and just to allow in our hearts this kind of rolling boil of resentment and anger. And we just assume that behind the surface, there in the Father, he's just ticked off. He's mad, he's angry, he's resentful. What we discovered last week is the Father was not home stewing. The Father was out searching. The Father was not growing in anger and resentment. The Father was growing in love and compassion. The more time went by, the more compassion and love yet. He didn't get more angry. He got more compassionate. And the father was out doing everything he can to find the son. But we discover at this moment that there was someone home stewing. And frankly, we totally forgot about him. I mean, it tells us at the beginning that there's a father had two sons, but the younger one has gotten all the attention. Every sermon so far has been about the younger son. He he believed a lie. He wandered away from the father. He saw the consequences of sin. He then comes to his senses. He repents. He turns. The father welcomes him. All the attention is on the younger son. And then all of a sudden, we forget that there's an older son. And we realize that while the father was out searching, the older brother was home stewing. He's watching how this played out. I mean, this third of the property the younger brother got was was part of his property. And if the son comes back, then we start all over, and there's another third that gets divided, more of his inheritance going to the younger brother after the younger brother has been nothing but irresponsible. That the other older brother had been home and working and, and doing what he was supposed to be doing, serving, 
And the younger brother had made his decision, and it didn't even make sense why the father would be out searching. Let him go. He's already decided what he wants to do. Father, just stay home. Let him do his thing. What was welling up in the younger son is not only, and the older son is not only anger and resentment, but a sense that he's just better than his brother. That his brother's the fool, his brother's the idiot, but he's the responsible one. He was the good one. He was the deserving one. And the thing about stewing is this. At some point, it's going to erupt. Now, you never know what's going to be. It could be a little thing or a big thing, but you've all had these experiences where you've been dealing with someone and some little things happen and someone explodes and you think, wow, I didn't think that was that big of a deal. The truth is that wasn't a big deal. It's all the other stuff that was a big deal. You just happened to pick the one thing that set them off. We had no idea the older brother was this angry. The sound of the music and the smell of the barbecue and the sight of the dancing was more than he could handle. He refuses to come in. Amazingly, it tells us that the father goes out and entreats him, verse 28. Meaning the father leaves the party and goes out and begs the son to come in. But in the same way that the younger son had a prepared speech that he was going to say to his father, we find out so the older son also had a prepared speech he was going to give to the father. Listen to it in verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Every single word is calculated and especially biting, starting with, look, look. I never disobeyed you. I always served you. you. There's a lot of I's and you's. I did this and you never did this. I served. I never disobeyed. Yet you never let me celebrate with my friends. And he even says, I didn't need the fatted calf. You didn't even give me a goat. I've done all the right things. I've walked the line. I've stayed home when I could have gone out with him. I did everything you told me to do. And now he's getting a party and I'm not getting a party. And I love how he says, this son of yours. Like a parent says about a child when the child does something bad. Your son, you know what I'm talking about. This son of yours. And I think the brother's response could be summed up in four very important words. The four words that are innately born within every child, they're pre-programmed with these words. Four words that are the most important words for siblings. This is not fair. (laughs) This is just not fair. If your child has never in their life heard the word fair, you've never said the word fair, they've never been exposed to the word fair, at some point at about five years old, they will just say one day, this is not fair. Because you didn't even need to teach them that word. They just have something inside of their heart that demands fairness. Fairness is a big deal for siblings. Here's the other brother looking at how this whole thing is playing out and saying, he runs away, he wastes your money, he comes back, he gets a party. Yet I stay, I work, I obey, I serve, and I don't get a party. This just reeks with injustice. I mean, he says, he says, I served, 
I never disobeyed, and I deserve a party. Because this is how it works with older brothers. This is how it works with the religious. Everything in their mind is programmed to think that if they'll just do the right things and keep the rules, they deserve something from God. And then... When something in your life doesn't go the way you thought it was going to, then you say to God, wait a minute, I obeyed, I served, I didn't do any of those things they were doing. This is not fair. But here's the irony of the older brother. In all of his sense of fairness and all of his desire to be right and all of his desire to point out the wrongs of his brother, his very own words reveal that he's no better than his brother. He's no, he's no better than his brother. He also rejects his father. Like you don't realize it, but he's got anger and resentment. He is distanced from his father. Not only this, listen, he may be worse than his brother. He may be worse because he has found a way to hide his anger, resentment, and distance from the father by doing a lot of good things. Did he do what was right? Yes. Did he obey? Yes. Did he serve? Yes. Did he walk the line? Yes. Did he meet the expectation? Yes. Did he love his father? No. He didn't love his father. He didn't want his father. He just did the right things in hopes that it was going to go well for him. And now, in this upside-down kingdom, the rule-following religious older brother is the lost one. He's the one estranged from the Father. Now, all of a sudden, the whole chapter becomes clear. That the Father is, is Jesus. That Jesus is the one that is aggressively pursuing something. Jesus is the good shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. Jesus is the woman who goes after the lost coin. Jesus is the Father who does not stay home and stew. He humbles himself. He goes away from the house, aggressively pursues the lost son, and will not stop until he brings him home. And then when he does come home, he welcomes him, confronting all of our expectations, confounding everything we think about the way the kingdom works, that the younger son gets in and is welcomed by Jesus, and Jesus throws a party for him and celebrates him. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus is the father, and the younger son is the sinners and tax collectors. They believed the lie that life was better from the Father. They squandered their property. They made a mess of their lives. They, they were the bold, loud sinners. In some ways, they, they kind of did it the right way. I'm not going to stay home and be distant from my father. No, if I don't like my father, I'm, I'm just going to leave. And he made a total mess of his life. He rejected the Father, but he saw his sin and came to his senses and returned and, and came home. And now the outsider is the insider. And the insider is now the outsider. The older brother is the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 2, who are grumbling because they've done all the right things. They've kept the rules. They've obeyed God. They've been responsible. But they're lost. They don't understand the heart of God. They are, Matthew 15, 8, with their lips they honor me, but their heart is far from me. They say the right words. They know the right actions, 
They have done the right things. They have been good, moral people, but they simply don't know God. Jesus comes to the end of this story, brings us all the way back to verses one and two, and by the picture of the older brother, And the words that the older brother said, he puts language behind the grumbling of their heart. It's brilliant. So they're just grumbling because everything is unfair and they don't understand how God is working. Jesus then puts words behind their grumbling. The older brother who says, look, these many years I've served and never disobeyed, yet you never gave me a guilt. Those are the words of the religious in verse two. And by their words... Jesus exposes older brother lostness. Now, we all know younger brother lostness, but what about older brother religious rule-following lostness? He reveals that, that the older brother only views God as a master. They don't see him as a father. They don't see him as a friend. There's no intimacy there. They simply believe that if you do your job, you get rewarded. You know what that means? They were using God to get what they wanted. That's what an older brother does. The older brother, a religious person, who in reality is saying, I'm just going to do what's right so God will give me what I want. They don't love God, they love themselves. Older brothers think grace is earned. God owes me. They don't deserve it because they haven't been good, but I deserve it because I have been good. And what arises in that is a sense of superiority. I'm better than them because I've done better things. And older brothers always think that life must be fair. And when things don't go your way, when God seems to disappoint you, what happens is you grow resentful, angry, joyless, and good older brothers keep obeying the rules. They keep doing the right things, but deep in their heart is a stewing resentment and anger toward God. They will honor with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. In other words, the older brother is religious. He's just lost. And it was his goodness that was actually his problem because he was trusting in his goodness to get him to heaven. He he really believed that his goodness is what mattered. And in order to be saved, he was going to have to repent of his goodness because his goodness is what's taken him down. He was going to have to acknowledge that my goodness is not what makes me right with the Father. Let me tell you why this matters for us. This matters for us because the church is always filled with more older brothers than more younger brothers. Because the younger brothers are usually ran off by older brothers. So the self-righteous, rule-keeping older brother usually has that sense of self-righteousness. It just kind of oozes out and the younger brothers hate it and they run. So what's left often in the church is just a bunch of rule-following older brothers who do the right things, they follow the rules, but they're distant from God. They're joyless. They're hardened toward the lost. They feel a sense of superiority. They're cold in their relationship with Jesus Christ. They're angry towards God. They only feel valuable when they do good things. So I do good, I'm good. I do bad, I'm bad. And most of the time, the older brother gets exposed when Jesus starts messing with your categories and someone gets God's attention that you don't think deserves it. 
just like Jesus eating the tax collectors and sinners. So just think about it with me this way. Imagine next Sunday you come in and you walk in the lobby and something's obviously different. Uh, there's more people than normal. There are balloons and streamers. There's some kind of party going on. And you smell something you don't normally smell. You smell food. And not like Sunday morning church food. Like there's meat. Like you smell something good. And there's all these people who are starting to make their way up the stairs and you think, what's going on? And it's clear there's something happening and you decide to go up the stairs and you walk up to the loft of that youth room up there and you look and there's these tables that are set extravagantly. There's linen tablecloths and napkins and napkin holders and there's not paper plates and Dixie cups. There's like china and glassware and silver and the lights are a little bit dim, and, and then there's a bar of food, and it's none of this continental breakfast junk. Like, there's an omelet bar. And you, you can make crepes, right? And there's meat. Don't ever invite me to a continental breakfast. You shouldn't even have breakfast. You have a continental breakfast. This is, this is one of those good... There's gravy. Like, there's everything that you would want at a good breakfast. And it's clear that this is lavish. And it's just obvious that a ton of money was spent on this. And, and you see me and you say, you say, boy, this looks expensive. And I say, it was, like crazy expensive. And I tell you that we have this little fund in our budget, which is for the best idea we don't know about yet. It's not much, but it's over there because we always come up with an idea in the middle of the year and we don't have any money for it. So we kind of put this little fund over here and I say, yeah, it's like $20,000 and I spent the whole thing on breakfast and I'm so excited about it. So already in your heart, you're going, there's something, something wrong here. And then when you walk in, there's something more wrong because what you see all around the room is a bunch of Muslims. And you can, you can tell. And then you see another table with flamboyant homosexuals. And there's immigrants at all of these tables. And there's, there's prostitutes and there's criminals. And listen, there's Democrats. I'm getting personal. And I spent $20,000. And you say, well, I want to come in. And you say, no, this, no this, is not, this, is, this is not really for you. We're, just, we're trying to do everything we can just, to, just to, to bless these people. And then all of a sudden, you look up, and, and there's a head table. And I kind of make my way off, and, and I don't sit at the head table, but I go to serve the head table. So I, I put on a robe, and, and, and I go over, and I want to make sure their drinks are right, and I want to make sure they have the food they want. And sitting at the head table is Nancy Pelosi and Ilhan Omar. And I'm just, I'm just loving them. Like, I, I pour out the cold coffee and I get them fresh coffee and, and I make sure that the hollandaise sauce is just the way it needs to be. Like, I, I'm, I'm just pouring out love upon them. Listen, I'm not talking like a politician. There is a constitution to keep, there are rules to be kept, all that. I'm not a politician, I'm a pastor. And much before I'm a nationalist, I'm a Christian. Like, my allegiance to Jesus matters much more than my allegiance to the United States of America. And I'm not, I'm not celebrating their beliefs. I'm celebrating the fact that these are individual people made in the image of God that God loves just as much as he loves you. 
And he shed his blood for them. The same blood that he shed for you. And he didn't shed more blood for you. He shed the same amount of blood for you and for them. And what you realize is that the kingdom is not made above all the rule-keeping religious. It's just made over those who are receptive. And we're, we're welcoming them in and we're saying to them, listen, Jesus loves you and, and he's inviting you to come into his kingdom. And if you would just humble yourself, you, you can come in. And I'm not trying to be shocking by my illustration here. I just want you to know that's exactly how the religious felt in verses 1 and 2. Can you hear that with me? Like, this is exactly how they felt. They walked into a party, and Jesus was there. And he had brought in the very group of people that the religious institution hated. This group that they deeply resented and wanted nothing to do with was the very group that Jesus brought in. And he throws a party for them. And their response to that party is what exposes that they're an older brother. Because they can't party. They're so full of resentment and superiority that it exposes that their hearts are far from God and there's one reason. They simply don't love the people Jesus loves. I don't know if you notice that this parable ends with no resolution just out there. The, the older brother's outside the house. The father goes back out in verse 31 and he says, son, you were always with me six times in this chapter. The word son is used, but never this word. This is the most intimate word you can use for a son. He's speaking to the older brother and he's saying, son, I, I love you and you're always with me and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and was found. And it ends with the younger brother inside, the older brother outside. And the reason there's no resolution is because it's asking us if we're going to come in. It's asked us the question that which brother are we? Because we're one of the brothers. All of us are one of the brothers because we're all lost. Some of you have been the rule-breaking Younger brother, some of you are just as lost and you're the rule-keeping older brother. And Jesus comes and begs both of them. He searches for the younger. He searches for the older and brings both of them and says, listen, I'm longing for you to come, but the only way the older brother can be made right with the father is if he will understand his own lostness that's just as bad as his brother's, humble himself, come into the party, and rejoice with everyone else that the younger brother is getting the party he deserves. You can't come in unless you see yourself as one of them. Someone lost who needs a savior. It's the upside down kingdom. And it's not filled with the religious, it's filled with the responsive. It doesn't matter how religious you are, if you have not responded to the invitation to humbly come to Jesus, acknowledging your own sin and asking him to save you because your good works are not good enough. You're outside looking in. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.